Today's scripture reading comes from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Would you join me now in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your continued mercies, how you guide us each day, not only through providence, but through the special revelation of your word. Father, we thank you that we can look at creation and we can see the testimony of your love and your mercies. But more importantly, we are so thankful that you give us the word to where we see with brilliance and undeniable revelation that you are for us, not against us. We ask now that in spite of whatever sorrows, whatever struggles, whatever seasons of trials and tribulations we may be going through now, Lord, would you assure us that all these things will work out for the good of your great name and for our own good. Help us to trust in the promises that you give us and let it begin now as we sit humbly at your feet. Father, I also pray for those among us who are not here as believers of you. Thank you for bringing these guests into our community and we hope and pray that you would speak powerfully and personally to them for their unique word that they need to receive from you so that they would see you for who you are and that they would see themselves who they are called to be. We ask now that you would bless this message in spite of its messenger, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, you know, Pastor James preached last week, and he had all these, you know, cool slides and very interesting colors and illustrations, so I I can't be outdone by that, right? So uh, I want to begin by showing you one of my own slides of a person just to show that I'm capable of the same thing as well. Can we have um, the first picture up? Okay, you may recognize this guy, you may not, okay? This guy is a cartoon character in the very famous uh, cartoon that's still on TV, shockingly, called The Simpsons. This show came out when I was in fifth grade, and it's still on TV. All the young people probably don't even know it's on TV, but this is still going on today, The Simpsons, okay? And this is Ned Flanders. Ned Flanders is the next-door neighbor who lives right next to The Simpsons uh, in their home, And Ned Flanders also happens to be a very, very devout Christian. And so you're wondering, how did the creators of of The Simpsons decide how they're going to portray a quote-unquote devout Christian? Well, if you know this character, you know that he's corny. You know he's effeminate. You know he's a coward. You know he's irrelevant. And he pretty much lets people walk all over him because according to the creators of The Simpsons, which is really a reflection of our culture's understanding of how they view Christians, this is how Christians are perceived in our society today. We are corny, we are irrelevant, we are effeminate, we are weak, And as a result, the Christian community has created a backlash because now, in spite of this kind of cultural purview of of our perception to a watching world, there's been a growing movement within Christianity today that I call dude Christianity. Dude Christianity. Let me show you a picture of a sample of a supposedly dude Christian. Can we have the other guy up here? This is dude Christian. 
this is a real Christian. He's actually a pastor. And this is a guy who represents the polar opposite of Ned Flanders. He's all tatted up, you know, has a nose ring. He's uber cool. He's hipster. He's relevant. He's not weak. He's not a coward. And this is the kind of backlash reaction that we have seen within Christianity. And this is the kind of Christian movement that we've seen amongst younger generation, specifically amongst younger men. This is the kind of Christianity that a lot of our young men today are attracted to, which is actually quite wonderful because the fact of the matter is, if you've done the studies, young men today are the least church people in America. And the fact that these young men are, are excited about Jesus and, 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 and really want to be part of Jesus and his church, that's a good thing. But the question that I want to ask is, is there a danger of being drawn to this kind of Christianity? Is there a danger of being that kind of cool, hipster, relevant kind of Christian so that you could have credibility before a watching world? Is there something that you inadvertently sacrifice in your attempt to live out in this world as God's ambassadors, as God's ministers? Well, I believe there is a danger, and it's all encapsulated by this one word, That one word known as gentleness, gentleness. For the past few weeks, we've been going through a new sermon series entitled METS, which stands for Members Equipped to Serve. And the purpose of this series is to look at the five crucial ministries that God calls every Christian to serve as a minister, okay? But we're going to take a little bit of break from that series to go on a relevant tangent from this series, Because I want to talk about this issue of gentleness because if there is any qualification, if there is any characteristic, if there is one attribute that ministers of God need to embody, it's the spirit of gentleness. If you want to be a faithful follower of Jesus to where you are an effective minister in the world, in your family, in the church, you need to have a spirit of gentleness. So with that in mind, three things I want to share with you this morning. When it comes to gentleness. First, I want to talk about why gentleness is needed. Then I want to talk about why gentleness is lacking. And finally, I want to end it with how you can cultivate gentleness. Why we need it, why it's lacking in our society, and how we can cultivate it. Okay, let's jump right in. First, why gentleness is needed. Now, for us New Yorkers living in the city that we do, right, doing the jobs that we do, going to the schools that we go to, and the interactions that we have in this city... Gentleness is not one of those characteristics that we aspire to have, right? I mean, for anything, gentleness is considered a weak attribute. It's considered something that weak people do. You know, it's kind of like a Ned Flanders characteristic. We don't strive to be gentle people because we don't think it's valuable in the society that we live in. And therefore, we don't think it's an important attribute to have. But maybe this story can change your mind on that to where you can see why gentleness is so important, especially for God. Uh, Ernest Hemingway The great American author once told a story of a Spanish father who had a major falling out with his son, right? His son did something very terrible. The father was so angry at him and basically kicked him out of the house, and the son ran away off to Madrid, to the big city. Years pass, and the father is just consumed with such sorrow because he wants to reconcile with his son. So years later, he follows the son to Madrid. He writes an ad in the local newspaper, and he writes this word, this letter. He says this. Quote, Paco, meet me at noon Tuesday at the Hotel Montana. All is forgiven, Papa. Right? That was the little ad that he put in the local newspaper. The father goes to the Hotel Montana Tuesday afternoon at noon. And what does he discover? He discovers Paco, 800 of them, 
800 men, all named Paco, waiting desperately for their father to come and say, all is forgiven. Now, what does that story tell us aside from the fact that Paco is a very popular name in Madrid? It tells us that failure is very, very common, right? It tells us that failure is not a unique anomaly for just a chosen few. No, failure is a universal problem to where everyone struggles with it. In fact, our passage tells us the same. Paul tells us the same in verse 1. Listen to what he says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I want to point out to you that word at the beginning of verse 1. Anyone. Anyone. It's for, from the Greek word anthropos. We get our word anthropology. And what that word literally means is every single human being or every person within humanity. Right? That is what Paul is saying, that if anyone is caught in sin, if any person that walks into is caught in sin, question, why does Paul use that word to describe the problem of universal sin? What is the reasoning behind why he uses that very, very universal inclusive word? Here's why. Paul is trying to teach us that every human being in this world has the potential, the very good potential of getting caught up into sin, into any sin. Okay, I know there are some of us in here who think, oh, you know, I can never do what that person did. Or I don't have it in me to be that kind of person. But Paul says, no, anthropos, any person. Notice what Paul does not say. He does not say, hey, if the career criminal gets caught into sin, or if that greedy thief gets caught into sin, or if that habitual addict pervert gets caught into sin. No, he says, if anyone gets caught in to sin. You see, Paul is teaching us that every human being that walks on this earth, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from, no matter what their educational background or socioeconomic status may be, anyone is capable of becoming a dirty pervert, a greedy thief, a violent criminal, even Christians. Because Paul is writing to Christians, is he not? You see, Paul is telling that you and I are living with the constant, clear, and present danger where you will face I will face inevitable failure because we live in a world filled with spiritual forces that are literally hell-bent in making sure that we fall on our faces, that we royally screw up to where we fail with utter shame, to where it humiliates us and it humiliates those around us. It's kind of like paparazzi. You guys know the paparazzi, those annoying people who take, you know, embarrassing shots of celebrities. You know, they intentionally insult and provoke celebrities to do something stupid so they can capture it on video and show before watching world to shame and humiliate these celebrities. In some ways, we live in a world filled with spiritual demonic paparazzi that is always trying to get us to do something dumb, to do something stupid, to do something where later on we're going to say, why did I do that? Scripture says it is inevitable. You will have a moment of failure. I will have a moment of failure. It is inevitable that all of us in here will have moments of weakness, moments of inconsistency where we will do something dumb to where we will feel so humiliated, so foolish, so wicked. This is why Paul says we need gentleness and why we need to show gentleness to other people. Because think about it. What is gentleness? What is gentleness? You know, some people say, oh, gentleness, that's the kind of like that generic personality where you're very laid back, you're very calm, you're kind of passive, you don't bother anyone, they don't bother you, right? That's how we perceive what gentleness is. But the Bible has a very different understanding of gentleness. It's a very specific understanding of what gentleness is because it has a specific goal of what gentleness is. What 
is gentleness. Listen to how Psalm 18, verse 35 describes gentleness. He says this, You, O Lord, have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. Here the psalmist describes gentleness specifically in the context of someone needing to be protected, someone needing to be saved or rescued. In fact, you see this connection more clearly in the NIV translation, which is, I believe, the translation that Jane read, right? To where instead of saying, your gentleness made me great, it says, you stoop down to make me great through your gentleness. So putting all this together, what is gentleness according to the Bible? Gentleness is when you protect and rescue someone who has fallen very hard in failure. Think about it. When do you feel most unsafe? When do you feel most vulnerable? When do you feel most in danger? It's when you mess up, right? It's when you've done something so incredibly wrong, wicked, or incompetent to where you feel so unsafe, right? To where you're such in a state of shame and humiliation. And so gentleness is when you go to someone who miserably failed and you make them feel like the safest person in the world. Let me say that again. When you show gentleness to someone who has utterly failed, you are essentially making them feel like the safest person in the world. That is what gentleness is. And here's the thing. There is nothing more transforming There is nothing more empowering to a person who has utterly failed, who's at a moment of self-hatred to where he thinks the whole world is against him. There is nothing that is going to change a person like that into a person feeling like he is the king of the world when he encounters someone who says they're safe because that person is gentle towards them in the midst of their failures. By the way, this is something that even business leadership gurus recognize as well in terms of how we can grow from our failures. John Maxwell, who's considered a business leadership guru, writes this in his book, Failing Forward, quote, the essence of man is imperfection. Know that you're going to make mistakes. The fellow who never makes mistakes takes his order from ones who does. Wake up and realize this failure is simply a price we pay to achieve success. The thing that Maxwell doesn't really emphasize or clarify, though, in this quote, is that failure can only lead to success when the person who's failed encounters a person who is gentle towards them in the midst of their failure. This is why gentleness is so important, because we live in a world filled with failures, and the only way a group of failures like us can grow and succeed and triumph over them is when we encounter a person, a community, a family that is willing to say, you're still safe. I am gentle with you. That's the power of gentleness. That's the importance of gentleness. So here's the question. If gentleness is this powerful, if gentleness is this significant, why do we not see it in our culture today? Why is it not pervasive, especially when you look at the positive outcome that can come from it? Great question. It leads me to my next point, why gentleness is lacking. Let's read the second half of verse 1. Down to verse 2, where Paul writes this, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul is giving the Galatians, and he's giving us a warning here. He's giving us a warning whenever you find yourself in a situation where someone has failed right in front of you. You see, there's a specific sin that all of us in here will be tempted to indulge in when we're in a situation where someone has fallen right on their face right in front of us. What is that sin? What is that temptation? Well, Paul kind of alludes to it indirectly in verse 2 with that phrase, 
bear one another's burdens. You see that phrase in verse 2? Bear one another's burdens. Now, hold on with me, okay? Hang on. I've got to kind of go in a roundabout way to show you where I'm going here, okay? Paul tells us that if you want to be gentle towards someone, if you want to empower someone who's failed miserably, it requires you bearing their burdens, okay? Bearing their burdens. That is, you're giving that person some of your strength because they are too weak from their failure to pick themselves up. That's what it means to bear another person's burdens, which means you, as a result of bearing their burdens, you will become weak as a result of you trying to help them get back up, right? I mean, for those of you who are into weightlifting, if you lift weights for an hour and you're bearing the burden of that weight, you're going to become weaker, right? Because you're transferring the strength of your body into the carrying of that weight, are you not? And the same thing happens when you bear another person's failures by helping them to get back up. You're carrying the weight, and as a result, you are going to be a little bit weak. Now think about the opposite of what I just described here, of what bearing your burdens are like. What's the opposite of bearing someone's burdens? Think about what that is. Instead of you becoming weak so that you can pick someone up, you instead make yourself appear stronger by keeping a person down. That's the opposite of what it means to bear another person's burden. Instead of giving someone who has failed some of your strength to help them stand back up, you deprive them of your strength so that you can keep them down to where you are above them, they stay beneath you. You see, that is the sin you and I are tempted with whenever we encounter someone who has failed with failure right in front of us. You see it as an opportunity to lift yourself up, to draw attention to yourself as the person still standing. In other words, you take advantage of someone who has fallen hard as a way for people to notice that you're still upright, that you're better. See, This is why we do not see people with a gentle spirit in our culture today. Right? Because people would rather lift themselves up at the expense of someone else rather than lift someone else up at their own expense. This is why politicians, if you've been watching the politics these past few months, you notice that politicians spend more time, more money, not talking about their strengths, not talking about their accomplishments. They focus so much, right? You saw the Republican uh, National Convention debate this week. All of it was about them showing each other about how much the other person has failed, right? Why? Because they're trying to say, I'm the better candidate. Not by how great I am, but how much that person is a loser, right? How he has little fingers, whatever that means. They're all about like weakness, 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 which means I'm stronger, stronger, stronger. This is why coworkers, when a, we'll, we'll see another coworker messing up on a project and they'll say, ooh, here's my chance. Here's my chance to maybe get that opening position. Here's my chance to get that raise. Here's my chance to get that promotion by highlighting the failure of my coworker so that I can raise my career rather than protecting my coworker from his failures so that he could keep his career. We live in a society where we make it our ambition to be successful, not by our own merits, but by the demerits of those around us. That's the kind of city, that's the kind of world that we live in. That's how we feel better about ourselves. And as a result, when you cultivate this habitualness of finding your success and significance, not through your own success, but through the failures of those around you, you habitually lack gentleness. And when you habitually lack gentleness... You become a monster because now you find your sense of happiness. Now you find your sense of success when those around you fail. You see it as an opportunity for you to be propped up 
when you see someone, maybe a coworker, maybe a peer, maybe a family member falling right on their face. And as a result, you crave their downfall. You get giddy when you hear about gossiping news where they've done some scandal, where they've had some failure, some mistake. You become a predator. Now, some of you are hearing is like, whoa, Pastor John, you're kind of making some assumptions about me here. Right? I'm not some monster. I don't take delight in other people's failure so it can make me spotlight about how good I am, how better I am. And my response is, oh, really? Really? Let me ask you an honest question. Have you ever found yourself a little bit excited when a competitor or another peer who everyone seems to like or another person whom everyone seems to compare you to, right, but maybe implies that they're a little bit better than you, when you hear that they mess up, when you hear they're not as good or that you do something, don't you get giddy inside? Or think of it the other way. When you're on Facebook, you know, right, trying to compare your life to those around you and you look at mutual friends and you look at strangers who are mutual friends with your friends and you see how their life seems to be a narrative of success and everyone is praising them and how everyone thinks they're like the best of the best and that they're so beautiful, they have nice children, they have their life together. Doesn't a part of you sometimes get annoyed? Doesn't a part of you sometimes get envious? The fact of the matter is, if we are brutally honest... All of us have this monster of wanting to tear people down so that by tearing them down, we can build ourselves up. That's the way the world is. And that's the way the world inside of us is as well. Whether you want to admit it or not, all of us have it within us to be the monster that refuses to show gentleness, but instead chooses to be a monster at the expense of consuming someone's failures so that we could be lifted up. And so the obvious question is, how do we change this? How can you do that? How can you be a minister of God, as we're called to be, when you have this mindset of being this monstrous to those around us? Is there a way that we can actually cultivate the spirit of gentleness that is needed so that as we minister to people and when they fail as we minister to them, we can still keep ministering to them? The answer leads me to my final point, how gentleness is cultivated. Let's read verse 3 and 4 where Paul writes this. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Now this is a very odd statement of Paul within these two verses because it sounds like he's contradicting himself, right? Because on the one hand in verse 3 he says, you are nothing. And if you think you're something when you're not, you're deceiving yourself. So pretty much saying, you're nothing, right? But then in the next verse he says, but boast in yourself. Take pride in yourself, right? See yourself as who you are, that you're a person that you should be proud of. Paul, which is it? Are we not to take pride in ourselves? Are we to just see ourselves as nothing? Or are we to boast in ourselves? What, What are you saying? How do you reconcile the seemingly contradiction that Paul is describing here? The only way you can make sense of this is when you understand the gospel. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, coined a phrase to describe the Christian, right? It's a phrase that goes like this. It's in Latin. Simul justus et pacator. Simul justus et pacator. Three years of high school Latin, that's all I remember, right? Simultaneously righteous and wicked. That's what that means. When you become a Christian, 
you are simultaneously at the same time a sinner and a saint, a wicked person and a righteous person at the same time. How is that possible? The gospel says that's very possible because when you look at the gospel, when you look at the idea of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, the fact that he has to die for you says what about you? That you're wicked, that you're a pervert, that you're a greedy, selfish, evil, sinister, violent person. That's why he had to die. There's something wrong with you. You are that monster. You are that predator. You are that person that relishes in the demise of someone else so that you could take pride in yourself. That is why Jesus had to die. That is what the gospel says about you. That's why Jesus had to come and suffer the humiliating, degrading death that he did. Right? But because Jesus suffered for you, because Jesus loved you with his forgiving love, you're no longer seen as that person Anymore, Because if you're in Christ, if you look at Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you trust in what he did for you on the cross, that he fully satisfied God's wrath and condemnation, you're not just a sinner anymore. You're now a sinner that has been justified. You are righteous. You are a saint. You are pure. You are holy. You are set apart. What does that do in you? What is the result of remembering that you're both a sinner and a saint? I'll tell you what it will do. It will make you no longer need someone else's failure in order for you to feel better about yourself. Why do we like it when people around us, especially people that we're competitive with, why do we like it so much when they fail? Do you know why? Because now all attention is on them, right? It's no longer on you. We all fear judgment. Do we not? We all fear not being good enough. We all fear of not accomplishing enough. We all fear that we're going to be inadequate, incompetent, or invaluable, right? And the only way we can alleviate that fear is to hope that someone else messes up even more. It's kind of like that proverbial, how do you survive a bear running after you? Run faster than the guy that you're running with, right? Just don't mess up as much. Then you'll be safe. The gospel says that's what Jesus did. God's judgment of condemnation was on you, but someone came in and he lived his life perfectly, but he was treated like the worst failure of all so that the judgment of God would no longer be fixed on you. It would be diverted away onto Jesus. That's what happened on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you no longer have to fear the judgment of God to be on you. Because someone came and deflected that judgment and put it upon himself. Even though by nature he did nothing wrong. He came to substitute himself to where he would be treated as the worst sinner of all. So that by comparison you know you are safe. That is what the gospel does. Remember how I said in my second point that gentleness is weakening yourself by giving your strength to someone who is weaker than you? What do you think Jesus did? That's exactly what he did. Jesus came and he weakened himself by giving us his strength, his righteous strength, so that we could be propped up. Friends, that's the highest honor a human being can get. There is no greater accolade. There is no greater praise. There is no greater accomplishment that we could ever have than being in Christ by having the stature of holiness and righteousness that we have when we have our faith in him. And as a result, you have the highest honor. You're at the pinnacle of human achievement. What else do you need another person's failure for? You don't. 
There is no vested interest in keeping a person down because you're already up. Because Jesus suffered as if he was the greatest failure for you. And when you realize that, when you see someone's failure right in front of you, you don't see it as an opportunity to lift yourself up because you're already lifted up in Jesus. But instead, you now can have the spirit of Jesus where you can do what Jesus did for you. Where you can go alongside someone who's failed and you can say, you know what? I know you feel unsafe. I know you feel like you're in danger. But I will be safe for you. I will help you get back up. I will give you some of my strength to encourage you, to empower you, to know that God has not given up on you as he's not given up on me so that you can recover from this failure and that you can triumph over it because of the power of the gospel. If we want to be faithful ministers with God, with each other, in the family, in the world, to the poor, you need to have this spirit of gentleness in you. You need to see that there is nothing that this person gives you, particularly in their failures, that makes you feel better about yourself. Therefore, all you do is just give, give, give. I give you my strength. I give you my life. I give you my service so that you could get better, so that you could feel safe, so that you could be strong again. That is what God calls us to do. That is what we are to be. We are to be ministers who are gentle with each other and to the world because our God was gentle towards us. Here's my question to you, NCF. Do you want to be more like Ned Flanders? Or do you want to be more like that cool, hipster, tatted pastor? My response is, choose the one that will challenge you to be more gentle. Because if you do, you'll be the best minister that God can call you to be. And you will be a source of blessing that no cool, hipster Christian could ever be in this world. Let's pray. Father, as we think more about what it means to be successful in the eyes of this city. Help us to remember that we are to strive for success in the eyes of our God. Help us to be faithful ministers in our homes, in our workplaces, amongst the poor, in our churches. Help us to be ministers with a spirit of gentleness. Help us to be ministers who can tolerate failure in those around us. Not so that we could use it for our advantage, but so that we can make our people around us feel safe, empowered, and encouraged. For, Father, that is what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. You have made us safe when we felt the most vulnerable, the most lost, and the most in danger. You have come, and you have made it safe for us to be with you. Even though you had every right to squash us down, even though you had every right to put us down, Lord, you lifted us up at great cost to yourself. Lord, help us to model that same love that you've given to us so that we can fulfill this holy commission of being a blessing to the world. Would you empower us to do that now? For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're now going to give the Lord his tithes and our offering for visiting us today. We don't expect you to give, but to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offering.